From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In his State of the Union address, President Obama vows to act on climate change. Climate change is a fact. And when our children's children look us in the eye and ask if we did all we could to leave them a safer, more stable world with new sources of energy, I want us to be able to say, yes, we did. Also celebrating Pete Seeger, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, awoke the environmental activist in him. I read it in The New Yorker in installments. Up to then, I'd thought the main job to do was help the meek inherit the earth. And still, that's a job that's got to be done. But I realized if we didn't do something soon, what the meek would inherit would be a pretty poisonous place to live. Pete Seeger's life and music and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The U.S. Constitution requires the president from time to time to give, quote, Congress information of the state of the nation. And until the terms of Franklin D. Roosevelt, this was most often in the form of a written report. These days, presidents seem to prefer speeches. And this year, Mr. Obama took time to address job creation, the environment, and energy. Now, one of the biggest factors in bringing more jobs back is our commitment to American energy. The all the above energy strategy I announced a few years ago is working. And today, America is closer to energy independence than we have been in decades. One of the reasons why is natural gas. If extracted safely, it's the bridge fuel that can power our economy with less of the carbon pollution that causes climate change. Businesses plan to invest almost $100 billion in new factories that use natural gas. I'll cut red tape to help states get those factories built and put folks to work. And this Congress can help by putting people to work building fueling stations that shift more cars and trucks from foreign oil to American natural gas. Meanwhile, my administration will keep working with the industry to sustain production and jobs growth while strengthening protection of our air, our water, our communities. And while we're at it, I'll use my authority to protect more of our pristine federal lands for future generations. It's not just oil and natural gas production that's booming. We're becoming a global leader in solar, too. Every four minutes, another American home or business goes solar. Every panel pounded into place by a worker whose job cannot be outsourced. Let's continue that progress with a smarter tax policy that stops giving $4 billion a year to fossil fuel industries that don't need it so we can invest more in fuels of the future that do. We're listening to the environment and energy portion of President Obama's 2014 State of the Union Address. And even as we've increased energy production, we've partnered with businesses, builders, and local communities 
to reduce the energy we consume. When we rescued our automakers, for example, we worked with them to set higher fuel efficiency standards for our cars. In the coming months, I'll build on that success by setting new standards for our trucks so we can keep driving down oil imports and what we pay at the pump. And taken together, our energy policy is creating jobs and leading to a cleaner, safer planet. Over the past eight years, the United States has reduced our total carbon pollution more than any other nation on Earth. But we have to act with more urgency, because the changing climate is already harming Western communities struggling with drought and coastal cities dealing with floods. That's why I directed my administration to work with states, utilities, and others to set new standards on the amount of carbon pollution our power plants are allowed to dump into the air. The shift, the shift to a cleaner energy economy won't happen overnight, and it will require some tough choices along the way. But the debate is settled. Climate change is a fact. And when our children's children look us in the eye and ask if we did all we could to leave them a safer, more stable world with new sources of energy, I want us to be able to say, yes, we did. President Barack Obama delivering his 2014 State of the Union address. And here to help us unpack the president's words is Ann Carlson, professor of environmental law at UCLA's School of Law. I guess two things struck me. One was the forceful way in which he made clear that climate change is no longer a controversial question scientifically. His commitment to try to do something to leave the planet in good shape for future generations struck me as, as a bold and very welcome statement. On the other hand, I was also struck by his continued commitment to a all-of-the-above energy strategy, embracing natural gas and fracking, actually rather clearly. He didn't say anything about fracking, but that's the way in which natural gas is coming up out of the ground these days. So I was struck at sort of the having-it-both-ways quality of the speech. You know, the president's comments on natural gas uh, drew a fair amount of fire from environmental activists, folks who've supported him a lot in the past. Uh, let me read you a quote from an email I got from Michael Brune, who's the executive director of the Sierra Club. Uh, Michael says, make no mistake, natural gas is a bridge to nowhere. If we are truly serious about fighting the climate crisis, we must look beyond an all-the-above energy policy and replace dirty fuels with clean energy. How do you respond to that statement? Well, I think the president is in a bit of a bind on this question about natural gas. On the one hand, there's no question that burning natural gas, as opposed to burning coal, is significantly less greenhouse gas intensive. On the other hand, getting the natural gas out of the ground through fracking produces greenhouse gas emissions. And there's big debate about whether those emissions that we're getting through the fracking process offset the reductions we get from burning natural gas in place of coal. Now, the president actually suggested that we start converting the American auto fleet to run on natural gas, embedding natural gas into the economy deeper. What do you make of that? I found that statement curious, and I was wondering whether what he really was focused on was the conversion of trucks to natural gas. There is a big move to convert trucks. A lot of companies have found that natural gas price declines are making it more cost-effective to shift to natural gas 
engines. But so far, the American auto fleet hasn't followed suit. Now, of course, natural gas is one of the reasons that the U.S. is seeing a drop in our total greenhouse gas emissions. And according to the president, he said the U.S. has reduced carbon emissions more than any other country in the world over the last eight years. Does that surprise you? And how do you think he got to that number? Well, that doesn't surprise me for a couple of reasons. First of all, remember that we are second to China in the total tonnage of greenhouse gas emissions that we emit. That means in absolute numbers, reductions from the United States are likely to be larger than reductions from other countries. China is still engaged in a path and a policy of strong economic growth, and so its emissions are growing, not shrinking. Other countries have seen larger percentage reductions, but the United States, again, in absolute terms, has reduced its greenhouse gas emissions more than other countries. Obama did say he wants to cut subsidies for fossil fuel companies and redirect that federal money into renewable energy sources. But I don't know how many times I've heard him say that before. I mean, what kind of traction do you think the idea of cutting fossil fuel subsidies actually has in Washington, D.C.? I think it has zero traction in Washington, D.C. I think it's popular politically. It's a good soundbite to say we're going to cut fossil fuel subsidies from big oil and put it into uh, renewable energy sources. But as you say, he's been saying this for years. It has gone absolutely nowhere in Washington, D.C. Well, now, there are some things that the president can do without the cooperation from the Congress. One of them is moving forward with uh, new low-carbon regulations for power plants. Um, What does that entail, and what's the timetable for it? So the Obama administration has already issued uh, proposed rules for new power plants that will cut their greenhouse gas emissions. Those are very likely to be challenged, but those rules are in draft form right now and have been issued. The bigger thing that the Obama administration can do is to issue rules for existing power plants to cut their greenhouse gas emissions. Now, those rules could be very aggressive or they could actually be pretty tepid and Uh, We don't know yet what they're going to look like, but we'll see. He's likely to issue those rules sometime in early summer of this year. The president said he's going to use his executive powers uh, for conservation on federal lands. How might he do that? Well, there's an act called the 1906 Antiquities Act that has been interpreted to give presidents very broad power to take federal lands and restrict their uses and turn them into national monuments and so forth. And virtually every president has used this power. Lots of presidents have tended to use it at the end of their terms. So President Bill Clinton established the Grand Escalante National Monument. President George W. Bush declared a a very large uh, area a national marine sanctuary. And so I think we're likely to see President Obama use that power and use it as extensively as he can. The president closed this portion of his speech with some very strong words about climate change, not only noting that it's real, but saying that we're going to be judged by our children and grandchildren. Ann Carlson, what do you think will be this president's environmental legacy? I think this president's environmental legacy will be a mixed one. I think he has taken serious executive action to try to address greenhouse gas emissions. But I think it's also fair to say that it has not been his central legislative priority, Um, and that he probably could have done more. I think it remains to be seen whether some of the actions that he can still take will actually burnish his legacy on climate or will limit it. Ann Carlson is a professor of environmental law at UCLA's School of Law. Thanks so much, Professor. You're welcome. Nice to be with you.
Coming up, with the Winter Olympic Games about to kick off in Sochi, Russia, troubling questions about their environmental impact and the impacts of the authorities on environmental activists. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Yes, it's that time again. The Winter Olympic Games begin on February 7th in Sochi, Russia, and they're reportedly the most expensive ever at $51 billion. That staggering impact on the Russian Treasury has sparked a lot of controversy, and there have also been protests about the environmental impact of the Games. Those demonstrations have led to a harsh crackdown and the arrests of green activists. Freelance journalist Alice Sperry has been covering the controversy from Russia, and she explains what happened. So last December, just as the Russian government released members of the punk band Pussy Riot and Greenpeace activists that had been arrested, they also sentenced uh, an environmental activist in the Sochi region to three years to a penal colony. That sentence is currently pending an appeal, so it's not quite set yet. But the activist in question, Evgeny Vitishko, is a geologist and a very active and outspoken member of the Environmental Watch of the North Caucasus, which is an activist and environmentalist group in the Sochi region that's been very critical of the Games. But this is really just the latest example of a long string of intimidation and harassment of activists in the area. Now, as I understand it, the Russian government say that these Olympics are the greenest ever. What steps, in fact, have they taken? So Sochi organizers are really keen on projecting a green image, and they've detailed a long list of conservation uh, measures they've taken to limit damage. For instance, they said that they have attempted to reforest some of the areas that have been destroyed in the course of Olympic construction. They brought in new plants, and they relocated a number of rare species of animals. They also pledged to compensate for their carbon footprint and for the carbon footprint of all the athletes and all the members of the media that will be attending Sochi. That's quite unprecedented for an Olympic. So there has definitely been some effort to mitigate the environmental damage. But at the same time, we have independent consultants and environmental experts that have worked on a number of Olympics before that said that the level of environmental damage we've seen at Sochi is completely unprecedented. Specifically, what are some of the uh, criticisms that the uh, local environmental activists are making about the, the development that's going on in Sochi? The primary concern of many activists is that in order to construct Olympic venues, the Russian government changed legislation protecting the environment in the area. So there are a number of levels of protection, if you will. One of these is a national park, which is very similar to our national parks here, in which you can only carry out very limited construction. The Russian government changed the, the legislation in order to be able to bring venues and roads into national parks. So most of the competitions will take place in what is the Sochi National Park. The Russian government originally planned to construct Olympic venues in what is a UNESCO heritage site. There was a lot of international pressure and a lot of opposition to that. So they moved most venues to the nearby national park, the Sochi National Park. So really the main concern of a lot of environmentalists is that this is setting a very dangerous precedent in Russia and that because environmental concerns are really not a priority when most construction takes place, the fact that this legislation has been changed will be used again in the future. 
Alice, describe for me the ecosystem there. What's it like and how is it being impacted by the Olympic development? Toshiwara was a very interesting choice for a Winter Olympics venue. It is the only place in Russia that has subtropical climate, so really not quite a winter destination. And, you know, Russia has plenty of mountains and plenty of snow elsewhere. But what people were saying is that what the local authorities and Russian authorities wanted was to have ski resorts and slopes close to the coast where a lot of the elite have their summer homes. The problem with that is that this is an extremely unique ecosystem for Russia and that a lot of that ecosystem has been destroyed in the course of Olympic construction. One of the areas that was particularly damaged is the Zimta River Valley in the mountains. This was a completely pristine, basically untouched river valley and forest that was home to very rare animal and plant species. And some 5,000 acres of this land was completely destroyed to make room for Olympic venues. The government has promised to compensate for the damage by bringing in some reforestation projects, by uh, relocating some of the animals. But really, this was an untouched environment, a unique environment that has been lost. What about the people living in the region? What's the impact that the Olympic development is having on them? People in the region have been impacted on a number of ways by Olympic construction. And this goes from huge traffic that has sort of halted the city for years to the environmental damage itself. This has been particularly difficult for villagers in the areas around Sochi. Uh, There is in particular one village, Akhtir, where residents were completely cut off from transportation for five years as this large railway and road were being built to connect Olympic venues on the coast to Olympic venues in the mountains. This village was also cut off from water supplies. So a lot of people in Sochi and around Sochi have really seen not only their environment transformed, but their daily lives. How have Russia and the International Olympic Committee responded to these criticisms? Russian authorities do not respond very well to criticism. Um, Early on, the Russian authorities involved or attempted to involve members of civil society and environmental experts in the planning process. They worked with members of the Environmental Watch of the North Caucasus They worked with members of Greenpeace Russia, but a lot of these people ended up leaving the process disillusioned when they felt that the recommendations they made were not being implemented at all. And, you know, a lot of these people felt they were being used as part of the authorities' attempt to greenwash the Olympics. The International Olympic Committee has responded to criticism. They have said they are aware of the concerns in Sochi and that they have attempted to work with Sochi organizers to make the Olympics more green. They have suggested alternatives and more sustainable options for, uh, for instance, the choice of Olympic venues. However, a lot of groups said the Olympic Committee has not done enough to uphold and protect the commitment to environmentalism that is at the heart of the Olympic Charter. When you've talked to the environmental activists and asked them, why do they think this all happened? What do they tell you? I think a lot of people feel this is somewhat in line with the way things are going in Russia in general. A lot of people point to really Putin's uh, latest term as president, and they say that since his return to power in 2012, there has really been a crackdown on any critical voice, and environmentalists happen to be a particularly outspoken and particularly uh, combative group, if you will, but they're not the only ones. So a lot of them feel that really there just isn't any space for critical voices in Russia at this point, or for anybody that's crossing business interests that are very much linked with political interests. There's a lot of sadness, actually, when you talk to these activists. A lot of them got into this line of work because they love the places they grew up in, they love the region around Sochi, and they've really seen it destroyed over the last few years. 
there isn't a whole lot of hope. And I think there's also a certain level of disillusionment with with the way in which the community, the international community, has watched this Olympics. I mean, we have seen critical reports, we have seen some investigations, but overall, the spotlight on Sochi has not really brought to any substantial changes on the ground, and people are really worried that things will just get worse when the Olympics are over. Alice Sperry is a freelance journalist who's been covering the Sochi Olympic development. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me. Last week, we promised that this week we'd bring you a story about 3D printing and its potential to turn any of us into custom manufacturers of green products. But that was before we learned of the death of one of the real heroes of the progressive environmental movement, Pete Seeger. He was the voice of a generation, a campaigner to clean up the Hudson River, and the tireless banjo-picking troubadour who championed workers and civil rights and peace. I first met Pete Seeger when I was seven when he inspired me to pick up the banjo and eventually even perform as a folk singer, as so many did. And his passionate concern to protect our planet was one of the driving forces that led me to found this radio program. Back in 1998, we heard he had an electric truck, and when we asked him about it, he invited us to visit him in Beacon, New York. So today, as our tribute and farewell to this extraordinary man, we present An Afternoon with Pete Seeger, the program we broadcast back then. I've lived all my life in this country. I love every flower and tree. I expect to live here till I'm 90. It's the nukes that must go and not me. It's the nukes that must go. That's Pete Seeger leading a crowd in an anti-nuclear song at a Harvard University gathering back in 1980. For some in the audience, this may be the apex of their protest days. For Pete Seeger, it's another night on the town as the nation's troubadour of conscience. America's tuning fork, some call him. For more than half a century, Pete Seeger has been leading people throughout the world in song. And in the process, he's become a walking history of folk music and social activism. In the 1930s and 40s, you'd find him and his famous banjo on a union picket line. Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, don't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. Singing songs with outspoken political views led Pete Seeger in 1955 to the House Un-American Activities Committee. Congress wanted him to testify about alleged communist affiliations. Name names, it was called. Mr. Seeger refused, was ordered to jail, and blacklisted. An appeals court blocked his prison term, and Pete Seeger kept on singing. In the 1960s, it was songs for civil rights and against the war in Vietnam. The sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the best way back to the base? Sergeant, go on, I fought at this river about a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but just keep slogging, we'll soon be on dry ground. We were waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. 
and ever since then it's been the environment. In 1969, with the help of other musicians and activists, Pete Seeger built a sloop he christened the Clearwater, because that was his intention, to clear the waters of the Hudson River of pollution and garbage. Pete Seeger lives on the Hudson, in a small, quiet town called Beacon, about an hour north of New York City, and just 30 miles from where he was born. For decades, he and his neighbors have met on the river's banks at the Sloop Club to socialize and organize over potluck suppers. He's asked us to meet him there, where it's his turn to set up for this month's gathering. A bright red pickup truck loaded with logs and plywood pulls up. A tall, wiry man with a white beard and glasses jumps out. Hope you haven't been waiting too long. Nope, how are you? Pete Seeger has lived eight decades, but he moves with the ease and energy of someone who still has a lot to do. Well, Mr. Seeger, you got here a Ford Ranger, except it didn't make much noise when you pulled out. I bought it for $8,000. Uh, a school teacher who teaches electricity wanted to learn more about electric cars, so he made his own electric car. And he put into it a 28 horsepower electric motor and 20 six volt batteries. Can I see another sure. one? Uh, Not much here. Uh, no, except the sign that says, caution, wear rubber gloves, you could be electrocuted. Right, there's like 400 amps. For me, it's perfect. I, I live on a very steep mountainside, and I'm always carrying rocks and logs. And with the low range and four-wheel drive, I can inch up the steepest kind of slope with a ton of logs. It can go a foot a minute if I want to go that slowly, because I just feed in more or less power with the accelerator. I'd be burning out the clutch if I was using a regular gasoline car. Let's go over here by the, your docks here out of the water and we can chat a bit. What a place for a sunset, huh? This waterfront was a tangle of weeds and the river was like an open sewer 30 years ago when the Clearwater started. And little by little it's gotten better. That, that park over there was our big victory. We, we petitioned and petitioned and people laughed at us, but by gosh, the petitions finally had an effect. And a little city money and a lot of federal and state money, a million dollars to make a park out of seven and a half acres of, of garbage. Ah. <laughs> um, Pete Seeger, how'd you get involved in environmental concerns? It was Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring. I read it in The New Yorker in installments. Up to then, I'd thought the main job to do was help the meek inherit the earth. And still, that's a job that's got to be done. But I realized if we didn't do something soon, what the meek would inherit would be a pretty poisonous place to live. And so I made almost a 180-degree turn, started reading books like The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich or The Poverty of Power by Barry Commoner. I'm a readaholic, and I was reading a book about the sailboats that sailed here, oh, all during the 19th century. Alexander Hamilton wrote the, one of the Federalist papers on his way to Poughkeepsie in a sloop, where they were arguing whether or not to uh, sign the Constitution idea and agree to it. Well, I write a letter to my friend, wouldn't it be great to build a replica of one of these? probably cost $100,000. Nobody we know has that money, but if we got a uh, thousand people together, we could all chip in and maybe we could hire a skilled captain to see it's run safely and the rest of us could volunteer. And three years later, the Sloop Clearwater was built up in Maine and 
I helped seal it down with Don McLean and a batch of other singers. And now it takes school kids out. It's not a rich man's cruise boat. It, two or three times a day, takes groups of 50 school kids out, teaches them what makes rivers dirty and what's got to be done to clean them up. Of course, people say, what can a sailboat do? It can't do much except bring people together. But when people come together, that's when miracles happen, right? What do you think it's done for the river? It drew attention to it in such a friendly way that people couldn't help getting attracted. In the little town of Cold Spring, south of here, there were some very conservative people who thought it was a communist treasonous project because I was involved with it. And uh, Aren't you communist, Pete Seeger? Well, I tell people at age seven I became a communist when I read about American Indians. And anthropologists, uh, that's the term they use for the way our ancestors lived anywhere in the world. The men hunted, the women gathered berries and dug for roots and carried babies on their back. And if somebody killed something to eat, the meat was shared. That's communism. I admit it seems romantic to want to go back to that, but I really do believe that if there is a world here, if there's a human race here in a hundred years, we will have learned how to share again. Indeed. Well, down in this little town, a man came down to see the Clearwater, and he beckoned to me. He said, Seeger, can I talk to you a minute? I said, sure. He said, I don't want you to think I agree with you, not one-tenth of one percent, but that sure is a beautiful boat. He couldn't take his eyes off it. 106 foot tall, the mast goes up. I call it a symphony of curves. There are hardly any straight lines on a sailboat and very few right angles. Curves, curves. <laughs> Sailing down my golden river, sun and water all my own. Yet I was never Sun and water, old life givers, I'll have them wherever I roam. And I was not far from home. That was the first Hudson River song I wrote. The Clearwater had not been built. I'd, I hadn't even thought of the idea. I was sailing a little plastic boat and there I looked at the water beneath me. There was lumps of this and that floating by with the toilet paper. And the phrase of John Kenneth Galbraith came to mind. Private affluence, public squalor. I had money to buy this little plastic boat. We had money to go to the moon, but didn't have money to keep the rivers clean. And later on, I was sailing by myself and I saw the sun go down the the sky turned from uh, yellow to pink to purple to midnight blue. And I had sailing down my golden river, sun and water all my own. But I was never alone. Coming up, more music and conversation with Pete Seeger on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, 
supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Back now to our Afternoon with Pete Seeger, recorded in 1998. talk about some other songs. Garbage. This was written by a young fellow named Bill Steele, who has for years been the head of the Folk Song Club up in Ithaca, New York. But he wrote it in San Francisco when he was visiting there, and it became an underground hit. There must be thousands of people all around the country who know this song and sing it. I added a verse. A friend of mine had written the first part of the verse, in Mr. Thompson's factory, they're making plastic Christmas trees complete with silver tinsel and a geodesic stand. <laughs> the plastic's mixed in giant vats from some conglomeration that's been piped from deep within the earth or stripped mined from the land. Well, then he went on to say, and so the water gets dirty in Long Island Sound, but I, I changed the words. And if you question anything, they say, why don't you see? It's absolutely needed for the economy. <laughs> garbage, garbage, garbage. Their stocks and their bonds, all garbage. What will they do when their system goes to smash? There's no value to their cash. There's no money to be made, but there's a world to be repaid. Their kids will read in history books about financiers and other crooks, and feudalism and slavery and nukes and all their knavery. To history's dustbin there consigned, along with many other kinds of garbage, garbage, garbage. You know, I drew blood with that verse. I sang it on the Today Show once. And uh, Fortune magazine says, Esso was sponsoring that program. Do they know what songs are being sung with their money? <laughs> <laughs> and they quoted the verse I sung. I don't necessarily like to draw blood. I'd rather... Uh, persuade people to laugh and eventually agree that maybe I uh, got a little right on this side. Incidentally, the only way I got it on the Today Show was by, I have to confess, a little bit of devious preparation. I knew that NBC wouldn't be happy about me singing it. I come in at 6.30 in the morning, they said, Pete, what are you going to sing? I said, well, I got a cheerful little banjo tune, I got something else a little more serious. Well, let's hear them. Played the banjo tune. Fine. What's the other? I sang Garbage. They said, well, Pete's a little early in the morning. Got some melts? I was prepared. I sang, walking down death row. Said, Pete, do you have some melts? If a revolution comes to my country. <laughs> well, Pete, I guess we better stick with garbage. <laughs> the whole studio broke up. The cameraman, the prop men. <laughs> yes, we'll stick with garbage. <laughs> Mr. Thompson starts his Cadillac, winds it down the freeway track, leaving friends and neighbors in a hydrocarbon haze. He's joined by lots of smaller cars, all sending gases to the stars. They're to form a seething cloud that hangs for 30 days. And the sun licks down into it with an ultraviolet tongue, turns it into smog, then it settles in our lungs. Oh, Garbage, garbage. We're filling up the sky with garbage. Garbage, garbage, garbage. 
what will we do when there's nothing left to breathe but garbage? You spend a lot of time with, with Woody Guthrie. I'm thinking of Woody Guthrie's song, Roll on Columbia, in which he speaks in such glowing terms of the, of the dams that are there. Yeah. I think if Woody was around now, he would find some funny song. He was wonderful at combining tragedy and humor all in one song. He did have a funny verse. Them salmon fish are pretty shrewd. They got politicians, too, run every four years. <laughs> What's the most important thing when it comes to the environment? I tell people, work in your local community. The world's going to be saved by people who fight for their homes. Now, there may be glamorous places to go to, far across the ocean and so on, but really, the world's going to be saved by people who fight for their homes. Is there a song that, you, that you'd like to talk about in connection with, you know, working in your own community, working in your town to make the environment better? Well, a lot of songs are about it. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. It's the garden song written by a fellow up in the state of Maine, and Arlo Guthrie and I and lots of others have recorded it. I've also written a, a little song I sing on the general subject of praying, because I think church people and non-church people should find ways to get together. It was just about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I was out getting wood uh, to start the morning fire. We heat our house with wood. And I look up and see the sun poking itself up over the mountain. Early in the morning, I first see the sun. I say a little prayer for the world. Hope all the little children live a long, long time. Every little boy and little girl. Hope to learn to laugh at the way some precious old words seem to change, cause that's what life is all about. To arrange and rearrange and rearrange, and I have a little chorus. Oh, we, oh, why to rearrange and rearrange and rearrange. Oh, we, oh, why to rearrange and rearrange and rearrange. You get the audience singing it. Come on, you guys. <laughs> you have to help me out Come on, next time. Yeah, 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 well, I, it's like a zipper song. Anything nice that happens, you can have a new verse. For me, it was ten and a half years ago. 1 a.m., our son-in-law, Shabazz, knocks on the door. The baby's coming. I said, have you called the midwife? Yes, yes, she's bringing two friends. Well, so we called up a couple of friends. It was a party for three and a half hours. Our daughter beamed like she was in heaven, and then occasionally she let out a shriek and then beamed some more. <laughs> and after three and a half hours, her firstborn, who was six years old at the time, says, I see the head, I see the head. Heard the first yowl of a brand new baby and said a little prayer for the world. Hope all the little children live a long, long time. Yes, every little boy and little girl. Hope they learn to laugh at the way some precious old words do seem to change. Cause that's what life is all about. To arrange and rearrange and rearrange. Sing it with me. Oh, we, oh, why to rearrange and rearrange and rearrange. Oh, we, oh, why to rearrange, rearrange, rearrange. Well, sometimes I wake in the middle of the night and rub my aching old eyes. Is that a voice from inside my head, or does it come down from the skies? There's a time to laugh, but there's a time to weep, a time to make a big change. Wake up, you bum, the time has come to rearrange and rearrange and rearrange. Sing it again. Oh, wait, oh, why rearrange and rearrange and rearrange. Oh, wait, oh, why rearrange and rearrange and rearrange. <laughs> I've tried to write lots of songs, 
but I have to admit that it's one thing to try and write a song and another thing to write one good enough for people to want to remember and sing. Woody Guthrie wrote a thousand songs and there's maybe a dozen which will be widely sung. And a, a friend of mine had started a small record company. He says, Pete, would you be able to put out a, a record of some of your own songs? I said, my voice is gone. It's too wobbly, too raggedy. When I stand on the stage, mainly what I do is get the audience singing. I accompany them. I line out the hymn, as they say in church. But he said, what if I get other people to sing them? Well, I said, fine, if you can find them. Well, by gosh, he got some awful well-known singers, Bruce Springsteen and Bonnie Raitt and Billy Bragg and Judy Collins and a whole lot of others, put out two CDs, mainly of songs that I wrote. And other songs, like We Shall Overcome, all I did was make an arrangement of them. Hey, we shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. That's an interesting story. Did you know that there's an old gospel song, quite well known, I'll overcome, I'll overcome, I'll overcome someday. Well, 300 women were on strike in 1946. It's in winter, and I guess on the picket line they probably had a barrel with a little fire in it, and people were warming their hands and singing old gospel songs to keep their courage up. And one woman, Lucille Simmons by name, loved this song, but she sang it what they call long meter style. And she changed one word. I'll became now we. And she said, we will overcome. Now, if you church people know how to harmonize, and the basses get the low notes, and the sopranos get the high notes, and you weave in and out. And a group of people can make beautiful music uh, just improvising with each other. It became one of their favorite strike songs, We Will Overcome Someday. Well, a white woman, a union organizer, Zilphia Horton by name, she learned it from the strikers and became her favorite song. Anyway, I spread the song around the country, but I didn't have a good voice like that, those two women. So I gave it a banjo accompaniment. I got audiences in town hall and others singing it, but it didn't really spread. Until 1960, a young friend of mine, Guy Carawan by name, had a workshop called Singing in the Movement. And some 70 young people from Texas to Florida to Virginia gathered at that little Highlander school and swapped songs for a weekend and made up new verses and so on. And when Guy taught him this song, they said, oh, Guy, you got a song here. And Guy had started 
giving it a kind of rhythm, which now everybody knows. It's uh, musicians call it twelve-eight time. That is four beats, but each four beat is divided up in three little beats. One two three, one two three, one two three, one two, one, two three four. huge arguments. People who call themselves environmentalists don't always agree. One says, don't have any dams. But uh, along comes a man who says, we have a lot of small dams, they won't do any damage, or not enough, and saves burning fossil fuels. Who knows what's going to happen? All I know is I wish I could live another 30 or 40 years, because some of the most exciting things are going to happen. When I meet people who say, oh, there's no hope, period. look at the things that are going wrong. And those stupid people in Bosnia, they're going to be things like that all around the world. Where power-hungry people says, I know how to handle this, just give me the bomb. There's no hope. But I say to them, I said, did you think that our great Watergate president would leave office the way he did? They said, no, I guess I didn't think that. I said, did you think that the Berlin Wall would come down so peacefully? Oh, I didn't think that would happen, yeah. I said, did you think Mandela would be president of South Africa? No, I didn't predict that. Well, if you couldn't predict those three things, then don't be so confident that there's no hope. And I give him, I give him a bumper sticker. It says, there's no hope, but I may be wrong. <laughs> Seeger, thanks so much for taking this time with us on Living on Earth today. Thank you for inviting me. What's it say on your banjo here? It says, This machine surrounds hate and forces it to surrender. I hope. Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far away. Well, may the skiers turn, the swimmers learn, the lovers burn. Peace, may the generals learn when I'm far away. Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far away. 
don't play the old hold-down dancer Swing round and round when I'm far away Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go Well, may the world go when I'm far away Fresh may the breezes blow, clear may the streams flow Blue above and green below when I'm far away Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go Well, may the world go when I'm far away Pete Seeger, sadly now very far away But if the world goes well, it's at least partly thanks to his banjo, his optimism, and his hard work We bid him a very fond farewell Thanks for everything, Pete Yes, well, may We leave you this week on Pete Seeger's beloved Hudson River. On its path to the sea, the Hudson passes Iona Island, a bird sanctuary that's part of Bear Mountain State Park at Stony Point, New York. It's a popular nesting spot for bald eagles. This recording was made by Anaya Lockwood for the Hudson River Museum CD, a sound map of the Hudson River. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our afternoon with Pete Seeger was produced by Eileen Belinsky and Jesse Wegman. Eileen also recorded and mixed the session. Naomi Ehrenberg, Clarissa Baker, Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catalina Pierre-Schmidt, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms, www.redtomato.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.